Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The problem in the Corinthian church that they were struggling with was the issue of sacrificial meats, and those in the church that didn't see any problem with eating meat that may have come from the pagan temples in their sacrifice, and the weaker Christians who had a great problem with that. And Paul just kind of boiled that down and said to the stronger Christians, be very careful about what you do in not offending the weaker Christians. And Paul also spoke to the weaker Christians and kind of encouraged them that they needed not to be so judgmental. Now, this is not the only place where Paul has talked about these kind of issues of personal liberties and offending one another. He wrote about that in two or three other places in his letters. And reading those all together gives us a more full picture of how Paul feels about this issue. But continuing on that thought today, we get into this next chapter where Paul is now laying out the case for his personal rights and how he is willing to surrender those personal rights because he believes sometimes in doing that, that's for the greater good of the body. I'm going to read the first 12 verses in the New English translation and then make a few comments on the way that most people would interpret this chapter and then lead us back to what Paul is really trying to say. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the confirming sign of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who examine me. Do we not have the right to financial support? Now, he's just reeled off a number of questions there, and the answer to all those questions is yes. Do we not have the right to the company of a believing wife? like the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I lack the right not to work? Whoever serves in the army at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, who tends a flock and does not consume its milk? Am I saying these things only on the basis of common sense, or does the law not say this as well? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. God is not concerned here about oxen, is he? Or is he not surely speaking for our benefit? It was written for us because the one plowing and threshing ought to work in hope of enjoying the harvest. If we sowed spiritual blessings among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? If others receive this right from you, are we not more deserving? So he first establishes why he's entitled to the number of rights that he has listed and asks these questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus thus qualifying me to be a true apostle? 
And are you not my work in the Lord? Therefore, I am your spiritual father. And on these bases, he says, I am entitled to these rights that he has listed. He's entitled to rights as a free man. He's not a slave. He's entitled to rights as an apostle. He's entitled to rights as a spiritual leader. And he mentions two specific rights that he's entitled to. Number one, he's entitled to financial support. Number two, he's entitled to the right to marry. And in verses 7 through 12, he uses five examples to undergird his claim that he and other fellow ministers have the right to financial support from believers. These are the five examples. He says, first of all, military personnel do not pay their own way. They're compensated for their service. Number two, the vineyard owner is entitled to eat freely of the produce of his own vineyard. Number three, the shepherd is customarily welcome to the milk from the flock that he is watching. And Paul calls all three of these examples common sense because he says, am I just present you a, presenting a case based on common sense? No, he said, here's an example from the Old Testament Scripture. He says, the Old Testament says the ox that treads the corn, is permitted to eat of the corn along the way. If you're going to work the ox, you're going to have to allow it to eat of the corn that it's treading because if you starve the ox, it won't tread the corn. Then you lose a good ox. So it just makes common sense to let it eat a little bit. And then the fifth example, we have to skip down a couple verses to find this, is from Judaism. The practice of those who serve in the temple and at the altar also receive part of the offerings. Now, after all of those things, in Paul saying, I have a right to get paid as a minister from those who I minister to on the basis of these three common sense issues and on the basis of the scriptures, it's wise to allow the ox to eat of the corn it's treading and on the basis of the priests serving in the temple. And all of these put together, he says, ministers have a right to get paid. Now, you would think, with the amount of time that Paul has put into this, that his main point would be ministers ought to get paid. And you may be bracing yourself for the pastor preaching a very self-serving sermon this morning. But I want you to rest assured that it is my conviction that is not the main point Paul is trying to make in this chapter. And it's certainly not my point for my sermon today. So relax. So the question remains then, why does he spend so much time making the point that ministers have a right to be paid for ministering if that's not the point he's making? And the reason that he spends so much time in doing this, in stating I have a right to this, is because Paul anticipates two objections from the people he's writing to. First of all, Paul had a feeling that some people might argue 
that he was not indeed entitled to financial support to begin with. So therefore, he's not really forfeiting his rights. And it's important for him to establish he is forfeiting his rights if he's going to go back to the main point, and the main point is we all ought to be willing to forfeit our rights. Just because we have rights doesn't mean that we are duty-bound to exercise those rights. Sometimes it's okay for us to forfeit those rights. Now, keep our mind on that being the topic here. But now, going back to explaining why Paul spent so much time defending his rights to these things, he didn't want them stripping away from him his theory that I have rights and I have forfeited those rights. Therefore, me taking the lead, me setting the example, I expect you all to be willing to forfeit your rights. Now, that would be a, a common response of some people if they're being challenged to give up their rights to want to argue that point. I don't want to give up my rights. They are my rights. I don't have to give them up. And so Paul is laying this out, a, a solid case. He does have the rights, and he did choose to forfeit those rights. Now, the second thing that Paul anticipates they might object to is that it was unnecessary for him to forfeit his rights. Can you almost see this debate going on in modern times? If I were to set an example for you and say, folks, I have a right, but I'm forfeiting those rights, and therefore, since I'm setting the example, I'm taking the lead, I expect you people to forfeit some rights too, and people start getting uncomfortable. Well, I don't want to forfeit rights. So their argument starts being, well, you didn't have the right to begin with, so you're not setting the example. Or the argument uh, means you don't really have to give up your rights, pastor. Forget it. So Paul is staving off these arguments. And he foresees that maybe they'll say, you don't have to forfeit your rights. None of us have to forfeit our rights. Other ministers don't have to forfeit their rights. They don't forfeit their rights. And since others don't do it, why do you think you have to do it? Now, this kind of language, the forfeiting of rights, doesn't sell well in 21st century America. We are a nation that are, we're very interested in rights. We shed blood for those rights. We have fought wars to protect those rights. People have died for those rights. We have ex-military here that you served to protect those rights. So for somebody to get up and say, you know what? Why don't we just think about forfeiting our rights? That grates against Americanism. So what Paul is saying doesn't suit our culture very well. It's very countercultural. Nevertheless, what Paul is telling is something that every serious Christian ought to take into consideration, not just about your American rights, but about your Christian, spiritual, personal rights. See, our Constitution talks about rights that are given to us by our Creator. And it would not go over very well if I got up here and said, let's just all think about giving up our rights endowed by our Creator. No, Pastor, we've paid way too high a price to consider giving those up. 
He's been purchased with the high price of human sacrifices. We cannot forfeit these having fought so hard to protect them. So these t- this talk about voluntarily giving up our rights, we get antsy. Our, our American mentality clashes with Paul's theology on rights. You can't think like a 21st century American and even begin to comprehend what Paul is talking about. As a matter of fact, part of the problem is our Christianity has been so blended with our citizenship, our Americanism, that sometimes our Americanism has become part of our religion. And our religion has been fused into our Americanism. And it's a dangerous place for us to be. And we have to be so cautious that those two don't become so blended that it, it, it poisons our, our spiritual relationship with God. People almost are to the point, even in this day and age, when politics is such a, a hot topic, it, it's almost as though Christians are quoting the Constitution like it's Bible truth. And we see this dangerous blending of these two worlds. So we go back to what Paul is saying, and he's not talking about Americanism. He's not talking about our Constitution. But he is talking about rights. And when we say rights, that's a, that's a trigger. Everybody starts thinking rights, and they're thinking their own version of what rights is. So Paul is saying, let's consider as Christians what it means to give up our rights. And then Paul lists some benefits that come to him because he's willing to forfeit his rights. He says in verse 18, he is willing to forfeit his rights so he can present the gospel free of charge. Ministers in in those days were not getting rich off the offerings of their supporters. Now, not all ministers today are getting rich off the offerings of their supporters. But I think unless you live in a hole in the ground, you're probably aware that some ministers are getting rich off the offerings of their supporters. I just read an interesting article this past week, and I think it listed the uh, top 10 or top 20 uh, popular ministers in this day and age that most of you would know most of them because of television and how much those ministers are worth. Uh, On that list, I don't remember, it might have been one that was worth $700,000, a young minister. He hadn't had time enough yet to amass his wealth. Most of them were worth well over a million dollars, and some of them were worth multiplied millions of dollars. Now, that disturbs me. It doesn't disturb me because I'm jealous. It disturbs me because somewhere along the way, ministry became a a, a profitable business for pastors. It bothers me because... The, the big three temptations that come against ministers is it's, it's been long defined as being money, power, and sex. 
the elements, those three there, have caused more ministers to fail. The ministers who are indecently wealthy preaching the gospel, I think they're going to have a lot to answer for before God. Whenever their whole message contains elements of we have to help the poor, but they want you to send your money to help the poor while they keep a portion of your money. And the whole thing is nauseating to me. I don't like what's going on. I don't seem to be able to do anything about it. But Paul says, I'm forfeiting my rights because I find when I do so, I can present the gospel free of charge. Now, what he means is this. Those ministers in those days obviously were not getting rich off the gospel. They did take offerings, but the offerings they received from Church A was only enough to sustain them while they were ministering to Church A. There was not enough left over to send them over to minister to Church B. So if Church B couldn't take up an offering and afford to bring them in, then Church B didn't get a minister, didn't get a missionary, didn't get an evangelist. So Paul decided he was going to work with his hands. He was, what was he, what was his craft? You're paying attention, bless your heart. He was a tent maker. And he did that so that if Church B couldn't take them an offering, he could take the gospel anyway. That makes sense. After all, Paul wanted to take the gospel where there were no churches. Now, who among the pagans is going to take up an offering and bring Paul in? What city that is lost in darkness is going to get together the funds and bring Paul in? He had to make his own way. There was nobody there to take up, take up an offering from, so he wants to preach the gospel without charging anybody, so he made tents, and he made his own way. He was free from being obligated to anybody. In other words, he refused to let anybody buy him off. Now, once in a while in my ministry, I have run into people who have tried to hem me in, buy me off, get control of me, by giving me financial gifts. I'm not the only minister that that has happened to. You got to be careful of people who begin to hem you in by lavishing gifts on you, and then when that day comes where they need something from you, they will call in their debts. You owe me. I have done this for you. And a minister has to be so very, very careful about that. I held revival in Birmingham, Alabama many years ago. And the pastor came up to me and he said, we have a, a millionaire in the church. He said every, and he named a particular gas station. He said every gas station that you see from here, and he said to another town, this man owns every one of them. He said he's wealthy. He said if he comes up to you in this revival and tries to give you any money, you tell him no. My heart sank. 
You know, the evangelist getting by on about $3,500 a year thinks that he's walked in and hit the big time where you got a millionaire walking around that likes to hand out money and the preacher says, don't take it. I just quit trying to figure out who that millionaire was. I know I wasn't going to get the... It didn't make any difference at this point. There's another church that Ann and I had candidated for. We didn't actually even get to candidate. We put a resume in. We dropped in and visited in that church many years ago down in Alabama. And we were told by somebody who knew that church that they've got about three millionaires in there. And the problem is, is they keep buying the pastor off. And then the pastor can't minister in the church and take care of the things that have to be taken care of and address the issues that have to be taken care of because the people with the big bucks have bought them off. Now this happens in Congress all the time. Somebody is in somebody else's back pocket. But it happens in churches if ministers don't have any ethics, any virtues. They let somebody buy them off. Had a couple in one church that kept lavishing gifts on my wife and I. And we were very poor at the time and enjoyed the gifts as early in our ministry. But every time they gave us a gift that noose was tightened just another notch until it came to the point a few years later where I had to deal with an issue with this couple. And they kicked back because what's the first thing they said? We've been good to you. We've given a lot to you. How dare you treat us like this? So first of all, I want to preach so I'm not obligated to anybody. Number two, I want to preach a gospel that's free of charge. And number three, I don't want the world to get the impression that I'm in this for the money. And he says in verse 12, but we've made, we have not made use of this right, this right, the right to take offerings, the right to receive money from those he ministered to. Instead, we endure everything so that we may not be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So it's tempting, so far as we've dealt in this passage, it's tempting to make pastoral remuneration the main topic. Uh, even some of the commentaries that I have studied in preparation for this wanted to spend a lot of time talking about what pastors get paid and how they ought to get paid and what the church should do for them. And I thought, you know, they're, they're really focusing on uh, an example that Paul is using, a sub-point, and they're missing the point. So let's put all this about the pastoral compensation out of the picture because that's really not what Paul is wanting to talk about. What he does want to talk about is let's be willing to sacrifice our rights. And Paul says, I've sacrificed, I've sacrificed my rights. I have a right to get married. I chose not to. I have a right to get paid. I chose not to. And then he takes it back to the issue of the eating of the meat and trying to get this church to behave themselves, conduct themselves in a mature fashion. How do we as mature Christians live out what Paul is teaching us? Now, if there's one takeaway from this passage uh, that I would like to share, it's this. It has nothing to do with feathering my nest. But 
Paul's teaching here makes it clear that ministry was not intended to make the ministers wealthy. And there are so many problems with with that, and we see them in modern-day ministries, and most of the popular television ministers today, as I said, they are millionaires. And my comment is their lavish lifestyle makes a complete mockery of ministry, which ministry is servanthood, and servanthood is not fleecing the flock. I've had many conversations with one elderly lady that was in my church that lived in a virtual shack. 80 years old, drawing no government assistance, at 80 years old, still cleaning houses to make enough money to be able to eat. And sending money to television ministries. And I had multiple conversations with her. Please don't do that. But they're feeding the poor. They need my money. I said, they're living in mansions. You're not. They're driving luxurious cars. You're not. They're dining in the finest restaurants in the world. You're not. They don't need your money. But I feel so guilty, she would argue, until one day after years of dealing with this and pleading with her, she said, do you know what kind of houses they live in? I said, I do. She had finally seen, she says, why am I sending money to somebody who lives like that? I said, I don't know. She says, do you think it's all right with God if I stop sending this money? I said, yes, I think it's all right with God. She understood that the kind of lavish lifestyle these charlatans were living was at her expense. She was trying to keep the frost off her kitchen walls in the winter and sending money to ministries because they put up pictures of starving children that this is who we support. You don't know how little really goes to that and how much goes in their pocket. God's going to judge those hucksters by the words that Paul wrote in this letter to the Corinthians. If these hucksters read their Bibles, they know better, and they will be judged for not doing better. Just one rule of thumb. They have to be good stewards of the money they are handling before they should be trusted with your money. It's that simple. Now, how do we take what Paul has taught to the Corinthians and make an application? Because when I preach, it's not just about explaining to you what Paul was talking to another church. There has to be a point of application. So here's where we're going to apply this today. This is what I get excited about preaching, like what Paul's teaching, like through the book of Corinthians, because this is where practical Christian living really is. 
This is where we take something home and we grapple with it for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. We say, Lord, I know that I should be doing this, but now I have to make a decision whether I'm going to or not. See, I've done my part when I throw it out there. Now it's up to you to do the hard work. Apply it. Live according to the Scripture. Like I said, all of this points back to the previous chapter about stronger Christians eating sacrificial meat without thinking about it and weaker Christians getting offended that stronger Christians are eating that meat. Being part of a community means we have to be willing sometimes to surrender our rights in order to keep the peace and promote the unity. So Paul is appealing to the stronger Christians. You know why? Because the more mature you are in Christ, the more responsible you are, the more weight you are supposed to be carrying. You're supposed to bear the burdens of the weaker. He cannot appeal to the weaker ones. They're not there yet. So if you consider yourself a mature Christian, you are also inviting more responsibility for how you behave. Now, where do you want to classify yourself today? Because if you want to class yourself as, classify yourself as an immature Christian, I'll leave you alone for right now. But if you want to call yourself a mature Christian, then I'm going to throw down the gauntlet. I'm going to challenge you. As a mature Christian, you have a responsibility before God in behalf of this community you're a part of to do a little more giving than taking. That goes along with being a part of the adults around here. And being part of that community and making sure that community works well means you are willing to sacrifice a few rights along the way. Not to say I've been here in this church for so many years. I've given so much money. I helped build this place. I've got blood, sweat, and tears in here. I should get to pick the color of the carpet. It doesn't work that way. How many of you have ever been involved in a church that had knockdown drag out over remodels, or over building, or the color of the carpet, or the color of the pews, or what they And people want to claim their territories because they've been there forever. And sometimes, you know, as a part of being the mature Christian, you've got to walk away from that and say, no matter what I've done, what I've given, what I've provided, what I've contributed, it doesn't give me any rights that I shouldn't be willing to sacrifice for the greater good of the community. You see, being a part of a community means there's got to be some negotiation that goes on to keep that community viable. Social negotiation is a vital part of the health of any group, any social group, any community. Church fights and church splits are birthed in stubbornness and personal agendas. If the stronger Christians who call themselves more knowledgeable Christians, which knowledgeable is the word that Paul used in the previous chapter, and Paul's the one that said knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, remember? So if the, if the stronger Christians, the ones who call themselves more knowledgeable, really care about the unity in the church, then they would be willing to make some temporary concessions to help the younger Christians reach full maturity. Now, the people I have sitting in Westside today, right now, 
the majority of you have shown a remarkable amount of Christian maturity because there's, there's no mystery to anybody who knows Westside and has watched Westside for the past 10 years. There's been some changes that's gone on in this church in 10 years. We're not the same kind of church that we were 10 years ago. The, the, uh, the DNA of the church has changed. And it's been difficult for some people to make that change. Some were unwilling to make that change. You're here because you were willing to forfeit your personal rights for the greater good of the community. You're here because you did not say, I want it my way. I'm entitled to have it my way. I've been here longer than you've been here. You're here because you allowed things to change. And I'm in the ministry. I've heard a lot of complaints from people about a lot of different things. I've heard complaint about music. I've heard complaint about lights. I've heard complaints about things that, you know, when, when, I, when I first came here and we began to relax the dress code a little bit, I took a lot of flack for that, too. I had a man come up and f- confront me angrily after church and tell me it was not right for those people to be on that platform in blue jeans. Now, even as I say that, that sounds so silly. But at the time, that man acted as though that was a biblical precept. That that was something that God had put in the Old Testament somewhere. Now, I don't want to complete the story in graphic detail, but there were things in this man's life that were obviously out of kelter, spiritually way out of kelter. And me being the reserved man that I am, I I bit my tongue and I refused to shoot back at him. You're worried about blue jeans on the platform, and you've got this going on in your life, give me a break. Now, I've waited 10 years to say that. But it felt so good right then to get that off my chest. That was one of the mentalities that you've earned rights to call the shots. You've been here a long time, you know. Unwilling, and quite frankly, I don't care People are on the platform in the blue jeans. When, I, when you see the worship team up here and the Holy Spirit begin to move on them and they just begin to worship, why do I care if they're wearing blue jeans or not? Why do I care? Why do I care? That is silly to worry about that. What I want is I want a free moving of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want. Now let's keep this in proper perspective. Paul by no means is suggesting that all the believers in the congregation should be held hostage to the weaker and the immature Christians. And I I know as I've preached these two sermons that there's a possibility in somebody's mind somewhere along the way because I've been 
I've been challenging the supposedly stronger Christians. Come on, people, you have to be able to give up your rights. Somebody has probably pondered the question, well, Pastor, there's always somebody that is not going to be happy with what I do. Am I really supposed to live that kind of a handcuffed life just because somebody doesn't like what I'm doing? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that in the least. Yes, there will always be complainers. Yes, there will always be somebody that will whine about what you're doing and the way you're dressing. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about people who genuinely could be so offended by the things that you're doing that they could lose their way. They could lose their salvation. They could try to fall along with what you're doing, and they're not strong enough to do that. That's what Paul's talking about. Not just trying to live the kind of a life where everybody who has a criticism, you have to somehow quit doing what you're doing and quit wearing what you're wearing and just because you want to be a people pleaser. No, Paul's not talking about that. Keep the weaker ones in check. But we know that sometimes there are weaker people that we have to be very cautious in what we do because they could be truly, deeply, spiritually offended. Do you care about that? That's the question. Immature believers are going to have goofy ideas. You were one one time, and you had some goofy ideas. And as you grew, one by one, your goofy ideas fell off, and you became more mature and more stable. And immature believers need to be brought along. They need to be developed. They, learn to, they need to learn the foolishness of their childish ways and grow out of that stage. But how are we going to grow them out of them that stage if we aren't patient with them? If we aren't willing along the way to make a little concession once in a while just to make sure that they're not offended and driven out of the church for being young and immature, but they are, are nurtured and encouraged to grow. I'm going to use an example, and this will be the end of my sermon as I use this example. I mentioned this last week. Alcohol is a modern-day example of something we can all relate to. I know that traditionally the fundamental church, the fundamental American church, has been a teetotalers. They've stood against alcohol. It, that seems to be changing in this day and age as the church is moving into more compromising areas of their doctrine. But traditionally... The American church has stood against alcohol use. Billy Sunday was a popular preacher who rallied and, and, and railed against the use of alcohol. It was the fundamental Christian community that fueled the movement to eventually adopt prohibition after seeing the devastating effects of alcohol on society. It was the church that drove that. But there's now this trend in which significant portions of the Christian community take this more relaxed approach to the use of alcohol. Now, this is more than just about personal Christian liberties and rights. Let me put it this way. If you have a son or a daughter that is a recovering alcoholic, Are you, as a parent, going to invite them over to your house and pull out the alcohol and serve it with your meal, knowing that your son, your daughter, 
that had almost destroyed their life and put that on the table and say to them, oh, I know you can't have any, but pardon us. Now, I don't know what you would do as a parent. I'm asking you what you would do as a parent. I, don't, I can tell you for a fact what I would do. If my child is recovering from having been nearly destroyed by that, it's gone. Of course, it, it doesn't exist in my life to begin with. But if that were the case, it's gone. It's never coming in this house. I'm, I'm pulling for them. I'm doing everything in my power never to put temptation in front of them, never to cause them to stumble. It's over. It's done. I don't need it. Period. That's what I'm going to do. Why? Because I love my son and my daughter that much. And we could argue about, well, but there's really nothing wrong with it. That's not the argument I'm going to have with you. The argument I'm going to have with you is there's somebody that I deeply love that I don't want to offend, that I don't want to cause them to fail, and I will give up any of those so-called rights that somebody may think I have because I care that much about them. Now, if, if you agree with me, if you are that kind of parent, if you are willing to give up, and that's just one example, I could put that in any of a number of different ways, but that's just one example of how one person could be able and willing to give up a right because they care about the people that that may offend. Now the application is also this. If we in the church care enough about our community, about our church, about the weaker believers and you suddenly realize that something you're doing in your life could be a stumbling block to somebody else, is there enough of Christ in you for you to say, you know what, I have a right to do this, I'm strong enough to do this, I can get away with it, it's not going to cause me to stumble, but if it bothers my brother and sister that much, I'll put it away. When Paul said in the previous chapter, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. And you say, that's kind of radical, isn't it? You know, living for God is radical sometimes. And I think Paul was speaking, speaking in, in hyperbole. I don't think he really envisioned a, an actual circumstance where he was going to have to go total ve vegetarian for the rest of his life. But he was making a statement that is, if that's what it takes, like when Jesus said, you know, if, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Well, I don't think Jesus envisioned anybody really having to do that. But the fact of the matter is, Paul said, I'll do anything to make sure that nobody stumbles because of me. Now, that in itself, I could take any number of different directions today. You know, it's a sacrifice for you as a parent to do things, to raise your children the right way. But are you willing to do anything to make sure that that child goes to heaven? I cannot imagine a greater pain than to realize that your own family didn't make it to heaven. To realize that your children missed heaven because you did not set the kind of example before them. Because you played fast and loose with God. Because church was not important to you. Because God was not important to you. Because controlling your personal life was not important to you and you just lived over the edge a little bit and, and, and then when your children grew up and became a carbon copy of you and they didn't make it to heaven is there any greater pain or guilt than to realize looking back I could have done better I'm asking your parents how much do you love your children 
How much do you love your children? Do you love enough to do anything for them? Are you love them enough to make any sacrifice for them? If you really do, that is the greatest incentive to living for God that I can think of. Going to church is not a problem for me. It's a minor sacrifice if it sets the right example for my children to take the right path. Choosing what I do in my life with the kind of entertainment I have is not a big sacrifice for me if it means setting the right example for my children. And I know that we have a tendency to live our life in this little bubble, like what we do doesn't affect anybody else. But it does. It affects our family. It affects our friends. It affects our church. And if there's one lesson that Paul is trying to teach us from the past couple of chapters, and that is there is no sacrifice that is too great to make to ensure that somebody else will make it to heaven. Keep that in mind every day that you live. Next time you think about treating yourself to some thing that you know a little, little bit off color, ask yourself, is this what you want your children to do? Is this what you want your friends to do? Is this what you want your loved ones to do? You see, making that sacrifice for the greater good of others is really what Christianity is all about. And we've got this here today. We're going to partake of in a minute. You know what this is all about? This is about the sacrificing of rights. That when Jesus did not think it was robbery to be equal with God. He gave up his rights. He took upon himself the form of a servant and left his first estate in heaven and sacrificed his rights. He had a right to live where he lived and never enter into the earthly realm and never enter in among humans. He had a right to do that. He didn't have to come down here and suffer. He didn't have to come down here, sleep in these horrible conditions where he didn't even have a home, he didn't have a pillow, he didn't have a bed. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go to Calvary. He didn't have to take the stripes. He didn't have to drink that bitter cup. He didn't have to hang on the cross, but he sacrificed it for the greater good. And to be like Jesus, to have the mind of Christ, is to be willing to sacrifice for the greater good. Would you bow your heads?